What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, September 24th. Oh my gosh, the end of September. This is Data Science Happy Hour number 51. That means next week is Data Science Happy Hour number 52, which means I've been doing this thing for a year. One year doing these, these office hours. Um, obviously, I've been doing the podcast for a little bit longer. Uh, the podcast had its first year anniversary back in April. I didn't start doing the uh, happy hour sessions until about five months after that. So yeah, man, next week is is the uh, the the 51st one of these. Uh, hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the episode I released uh, with Dennis Will, who is a data engineer based out of Berlin. Had a great chat. I actually met Dennis through um, link, not LinkedIn, but uh, Instagram. He is Azure Will on Instagram. Uh, he hasn't posted in a while, but his content is amazing. It's It's been great. So hopefully you guys get a chance to uh, connect with him. Um, I don't know if anybody caught the episode with uh, with Lex Friedman this week. Not with me, but Lex Friedman had an interview with uh, Travis Oliphant, who is the creator of NumPy and SciPy. Uh, and that was just a really cool episode, man. Really great way to get some um, history on on the uh, stuff that we use on a daily basis. So that was a really cool interview. Hopefully you guys get a chance to check it out. I'm about like halfway through-ish and it's been amazing so far. Shout out to everybody in the room. Tom, what's going on? We got Eric. Eric is back. Eric, congratulations Yo. on the move. How is that move? Good to be here. Good to be back. You know, life's good. Can't complain. Awesome, man. Awesome. Uh, shout out to Coast of joining us from down under Russell out there in the UK. Matt and Auntie. Auntie, I forget where Auntie's at, but also somewhere in Europe. Um, a lot of countries in Europe. I can't remember them all. Well, I'm happy to have all you guys here. Uh, let's go ahead and get started, man. So if anybody has questions, whether you are watching on LinkedIn, on YouTube, even right here in the room, if any of you guys got questions at all, feel free to drop your question right there in the chat or the comment box, wherever it is that you are, and I'll be happy to uh, to, to get your question. Um, but uh, until then, man, let's let's go ahead and kick this off. Uh, oh man, we got we got an old friend of mine, Vu. Yeah. Vu is in the building, so I used to work with Vu way back in the days. Uh, uh, the first job I had during and after grad school at this company called uh, what's the called warranty. the Warranty Group. That's what it was called. Vu, good to see you here, my friend. Uh, but yeah, man, let's go ahead and get started, dude. If anybody has questions, let me know. I I came super unprepared. I don't even have like a question to kick us off and get us started with. So if anybody wants to uh, take responsibility for that, I'm more than happy to uh, to to pass that responsibility to you. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep on just talking and filling up dead air until somebody gets a question, which I'm sure nobody wants any of that stuff. My first uh, office hour, but do people like, you know, drink beers or something or anything during yeah 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 uh typically just me i think russell might be having beer uh, uh i'm not sure who else is but yeah we just hang out talk about data science related stuff sounds good i'm gonna grab me one yeah man yeah who's uh in the morning who, for me what time is it over there uh 7 30 wow maybe a bit soon for a beer don't you think yeah, I mean, depends, depends. What your, <laughs> depends what your lifestyle is like, man. Uh, Matt Diamond asking if I'm a Niners fan. Yes, I'm a Niners fan. Uh, love the uh, 49ers. Absolutely love them. Uh, uh, Auntie's asking, have you guys Good heard for the... You, 
Yeah, go on, Matt. That's a that's impressive all the way out in Canada. I didn't. I'm I'm on I eighty right now. That that's I'm I'm happy to see that. Yeah, man. Well, not I don't know if people know or not, but I'm actually from Sacramento, California. Born and raised in Sacramento. That's my hometown. Uh, so so. Oh no, I kidding. The, I know the ID. I'm I am on my way there right now. Oh, to Sacramento. Yeah, I'm driving there right now. Yeah, right on. Well, just tell everybody I say what's up. <laughs> I think Mark's actually from uh, Sacramento as well. Uh, but yeah, man, let's go ahead and uh, let's let's get this started. Um, um, all right. So the question I would want to kick off with, I guess, is um, how are you guys like handling, like, I guess, okay, so I've been heads down thinking and, and talking and writing about experimentation management, um, you know, just as part of, part of my job. And I'm wondering, you know, before you guys really started doing hardcore machine learning and, and you know, really building out models, like how are you managing your experiments before? Let's start with Tom, because um, I'm sure Tom has some great insight because uh, that's, you know, typically what happens when you get white hair is you get good insight. Yes, uh, each of these hairs that are gray, which seems like it's all of them now, they each turn gray because of something I learned the hard way or the stupid way. But um, I come originally from doing mostly physics-based modeling. And when you meet an engineer that does a lot of predictive modeling, um, even if they do very similar to what we do, which they would do if they were doing empirical modeling or design of experiments or you know, factor analysis with ANOVA, very, very close to data science type modeling, but very different lingo too. And so when you're talking to them, you have to just be patient, like, okay, there's gonna be semantical differences, stuff like that. But what was key is there was always a methodology. And when I started migrating to more and more data science work, I started looking for the methodologies and realizing, oh, this is so new. Everyone's not necessarily communicating the, the wisest methodology in a machine learning pipeline development. And so I just started collecting them. And uh, over time, I saw how acyclic they could be when you're developing machine learning problem too. And then... It was quite freeing. It, it, was, it was almost uh, upsetting at first to realize, oh, you mean we actually use models that aren't in the 95 plus percent accuracy range? <laughs> and then it dawned on me, wait a minute, I, I'm spoiled by the engineering realm. If you get a model in place and you had no model before, 65% accuracy is a godsend. Then you can improve things from there as you collect more data. And so it was, a, it was quite a bit of a change mentality-wise, but really striving to capture the concepts that, that a data scientist has to operate in that are different from an engineer that models things. That was the first big thing. And then once the concepts were there, really mastering a uh, a methodology that was key i found and then talk about methodology real quick i got a question on that so like um it there's many many methodologies out there is it important that we all have the same methodology or is it just important that when somebody approaches a problem and solves a problem that their methodology makes sense and is coherent 
So is methodology something that is written down in stone? Is it flexible? Is it problem dependent? Well, forgive me for uh, leveraging wisdom from another field, but I'm going to lean over to Chuck Norris. If we were learning martial arts, he'd say, okay, go study one of the ancient tried and true disciplines first. Like maybe he, he did Taekwondo, for example. And then say, okay, now once you're good at that, at those basics, then you can try to do some new fancy things. So what I'm getting at, if one of us was getting into car mechanicing, there may be someone in our group that say, oh, let me tell you what tools you need initially and what things you need to focus on for the basics so you won't get lost when you're working on cars. Yeah, you're going to work on something unique every once in a while. But if you know those basics and you know how to look things up, then the world's your mechanicing oyster. So it's a spirit of if, if, you, if you build your shop and you get the right tools in there and you get the right manuals and the right learning resources, you can go at anything. I think that's where new data scientists need to get. Understand the concepts, get your tool sets that you like, get your basics. And yeah, every once in a while, you're going to have to go learn something new. But if you know those basics, they're going to really help you. And I just want to give a shout out to my top data science student. He approached me months ago now, and now we're like brothers. And that's Greg Coquillo. He's an outstanding data science student. But obviously, he's a leader, leading integrator of data science into the business realm. And that's where I lean on him myself. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, great, great insight there. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, um, I would love to hear from Kostab on this. Uh, so pretty much the, the question that I'm asking is uh, pertaining to methodology. Is like, is there a methodology that's just like, this is the methodology that we should use? Or is methodology dependent? Does methodology just need to be sound and reasonable from one practitioner to the next? Is it problem dependent? Is it industry dependent? Um, let, you know, let's, let's, let's pick it up from there. Coast up, go for it. Then after this, I'd love to hear from uh, either Greg or Joe. Also, shout out to some new people that joined in, Joe being one of them. What's up? Vivian's in the building. I'd love to hear about Vivian's uh, new job and how that's going. Uh, also, we got Matt Housley joining in. So I'd love to uh, ask him this question as well. But Coast up, my friend, go for it. By the way, everybody listening, we are taking your questions. So let them uh, drop them in the chat, drop them in the comment section. I'm keeping an eye out for them. So I guess um, considering we've got so many Star Wars themed backgrounds, uh, I simply go by the, you know, the axiom of only a Sith deals in absolutes, right? I mean, everything is a measure of shade of gray. So when you're talking about methodologies and approaches, uh, it's really what works for that particular business. Like what I found is working across a few different companies early in my, I mean, I'm only pretty early in my career, but I've worked across three or four different companies and they're all different sizes, different mentalities. Uh, and their mentality specifically works for them. And that's what makes them companies that work out well. Um, and the same thing you can kind of apply to your approach as a data scientist or your approach as an engineer. What works for one set of problems, like what worked in robotics, may not work specifically in a non-robotics-related data science area, right? Um, sorry, guys. Right on. Uh Appreciate that, Costa. Thank you so much. Um, 
Let's go to uh, Joe for this one. And then, by the way, if you guys are watching on LinkedIn, do me a favor. Go ahead and hit share. Share this with your network. Uh, let people know that this is going down. Uh, Joe, go for it. Oh, hello. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what spawned this. I, I sort of showed up a bit uh, late to the party, but um, can I get some context on like what, what, what prompted the discussion on uh, methodologies to begin with? Maybe I can have a better oh, you answer. Know. You know how it goes. Someone says something and then it sticks out to me. Riffs. Yeah. Something. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, methodology is an interesting thing. I mean, because I, I, as you know, my background, uh, I mean, I've done, done a lot of different things. And I would say there's what I've realized there's not a universal methodology for anything. Um, what works in one area, I would say what works really well, the best methodology is to, to adopt a lot of different methodologies and use them on a situational basis. You know, um, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Tom mentioned uh, Chuck Norris. And I'll, I'll mention Bruce Lee, sort of the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Um, you know, but uh, you know, he's an early adopter of of what I guess is now MMA. You know, and I kind of I approach things like that where one style is great, except um, you know, it doesn't really work all the time. If you're uh, so, you know, the thing I think like, being dogmatic and, and having one methodology is is actually it works counter to, especially in a world that changes this quickly. And I think it revolves around so many different mental models, you know? So I think the more you, the more mental models you can adopt, the more methodologies are better actually. So, cause the thing is, it also prevents, I think, it, you know, not to belabor this, but it also provides a competitive advantage too, where if you're in a room full of people who only know one thing and you know how to approach things from like 20 different ways, uh, who do you think is going to have a better, um, you know, outcome? So. I don't think you it, it great. comes down to that flexibility, yeah. doesn't it? Like your ability to see that a situation specifically doesn't react well to a particular methodology. Is that what you're saying, Jack? Yeah, exactly. I, I you know, I, I got this from uh, you know, another thing from Charlie Munger, Warren uh, Buffett's partner, but like he's he's sort of like the you know, um uh you know, attributed the, the kingpin of like mental models. You know, he I think he says you need about 90 mental models to be effective in this world. So, um, kind of a follow-up so, question for you on that, Joe. Is mm -hmm. it more important to know which mental model to use, or more yeah. important to know when the mental model you are using isn't working? Both. If you could have one rather than the other, which would you have? Uh, both. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, two, they're two sides of the same coin, really. It's like you know, um, I need to know which one to apply to this situation. I also need to know the limits of my mental model to know when I don't need to use it. So. Yeah, and, and just for everybody listening out there, a quick definition of mental model, personal, internal representations of external reality that people use to interact with the world around them. Uh, they're constructed by individuals based on their unique life experience, perceptions, and understanding of the world. That's great. Let's, let's, let's switch the conversation to mental models now since we're on that. So talking about mental models, what are some mental models that we should probably keep in mind as as data scientists like as you're doing your work is there something that you like maybe a mantra or a uh, just mental model i guess um that that you kind of apply regardless of what the the problem is i guess universal mental models um uh, i guess we can start with joe on that then i'd love to hear from matt and uh there's a bunch of people popping in we'll get to all of you guys uh and if you have questions let me know i'm keeping track in the comments and in the chat one, one thing I also took from Charlie Munger, if you can't tell, he's like my favorite person on the planet. Um, but the mental model I took away from him was simply just invert everything. So if you, if you hear a, a question or a statement, um, what if you flip it inside out, what is that? 
uh, I think inversion is the most underrated and most powerful tool you can find um, out there. And so that, that's how I would approach any um, problem to start out with, at least. So if you don't take anything at face value, like flip it on its head. And what does that look like? I mean, that's basically the tenets of uh, predicate logic, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. proving yep. something by negation. I mean, Matt, you want to talk about proofs for a bit? <laughs> we get the Not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> I've taught a lot of proofs. The math professor. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, so taught, real yeah. quick though, uh, yeah. just uh, can we get a concrete example of inversion or maybe concrete example of how you use inversion when you're faced with like a, with a data problem? Yeah. Like, like how, how, how should we think about that? when we're working with, you know, I mean, a simple thing is when somebody makes an assertion, right? Like this, this is um, uh, like, this is what I'm, you know, this is what I, I, I propose, right? Well, you know, I mean, what, I, you know, or um, what's a good example that comes up? Give, give me like a data science question, for example, something that comes up a lot. Maybe I can try and invert it for you. So, yeah. How about this? Um, which, which algorithm should I use to solve this binary classification problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would I would I would probably like flip it on his head and like ask like what 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 approaches would not work for binary classification. Okay, nice. All right. right. So yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um Greg, go for it. Yeah, I I totally uh agree with Joe in that sense, the in inversion. So um this is definitely a mental model that I apply when I build roadmaps. Because you enter this framework where you're listing all these great ideas that you feel will transform based on feedback that you receive from the world. And you're excited about these ideas, but you don't realize that you're putting yourself in the corner uh, in this bubble where that idea is a very best case scenario. So to do that, to refrain yourself from, you know, staying in the bubble for too long, you have to kind of invert each of these uh, things that you come up with by uh, coming up with things that would go against these ideas that you come from, you, you, you come in with, you coming up with. So you come up with idea X, Y, Z, you create a list of things that, uh, you know, kind of convince you that something else can work better or something more, much more simpler can work better in order for you not to spend too much time and these big ideas that you think will change people's lives when something much simpler could have done the job in the first place. So when you're building that roadmap, you have to constantly question yourself and evaluate uh, the things that would go against it uh, to make sure that you're hitting on the right points. And that's one mental model that I always keep when it comes to uh, defining what the future needs to be for a technology or a tool, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, go for it, Tom. Just briefly, um, this whole talk actually relates very closely to the my favorite talk that I give called Integrating Brilliance. And I gave it at DSGO with your help on the question answers, Harpreet. And I'm giving it again here soon at Future Data Driven. But I got inspired by tracking the growth of math and science thinking over the centuries and wanted to kind of see was there a pattern that caused the big jumps and so but a big key when we're integrating brilliance is 
to say, you know, wow, control system design, that's really cool. But if I abstract it and, and really understand the concepts, if I understand that abstraction of those concepts very well, I can apply it to other areas of my life and other areas of math and science, the general principles. So I, I like a lot what Joe was saying about, well, you know, we only need X number of models to really make it well in this life. But the, the models are patterns to help you think they're, thing, they're patterns we've seen over and over again. But I like what Russell's saying, too. Don't be ironclad in thinking there's two problems, too much trust in the model and misapplication of the model. I think the biggest problem with logic is people thinking they're being logical and not applying logic correctly. And I'm, I'm saying that of myself, too. We need to always be suspect. Well, yeah, I've got this great model, but am I really applying it well? Yeah, we know the pain of troubleshooting our own code, even when we're importing modules from Scikit-Learn. So it happens. We misapply things all the time. We have to hold ourselves suspect constantly, but we sure make a lot better progress when we take this wisdom from the ages and abstract it and try to leverage from that rather than just shooting from the hip all the time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Uh, up, go for it. So as someone who's more new to all this and don't have all the gray hairs of experience, right? How do I, I mean, is there somewhere where I can start looking into to learn more of these mental models that specifically apply to data science? Now, obviously, I'm going to pick them up as I go through my career through experience, right? But how do we fast track that? Like you guys have spent years learning all these mental models, right? How do you and how do we then send that data? I mean, anytime we develop some kind of knowledge, we pass it on through teaching and through learning, right? So how do we how do we do that? How do we get to mental models for the same thing? It's not a technical skill, right? Go for it, Greg. Coast of to mute you because it was uh, beeping like crazy. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure where the beeping started. Yeah, go from. for it. Go for it, Greg. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm assuming your question, I think, is valid for whether you're a data scientist or, or, or not, right? So, to me, it's about pulling these mental models based on your experience as you go through through things, right? So inside of your professional life or personal life, if you go through things that teach you certain lessons, uh, you create mental models this way or the other way too is to talk to people who's been there before, right? So one of the ways you can do that is, you know, coming to a platform like this, talking to folks who've been there before and has uh, seen success, failures and created uh, their own mental models. And you can learn from those to inform your own uh, when you're in a working environment, you you're you're talking to your peers, your manager, your mentors. Uh, they will give you things that will help you create your mental model. And uh, I think those are the things that are not. They, they shouldn't be. Uh, they should constantly be evaluated, right? So uh, you may forge ones that don't help you progress throughout your career, and you may forge one sums that. Uh, do uh, help you uh, progress and you will have to pull some in your hat depending on the situation that you're uh, facing and uh, to me it's uh, it's about you know learning on the go talking to people and uh, standing on the shoulders of giants and and uh, you make your own and, and you move forward 
Greg. Thank you very, very much. Um, I would also add to, you know, the way uh, Munger describes uh, developing mental models is just read a ton, right? And read it in areas that are outside of your, your normal discipline. Um, like that's where he, you know, got a lot of his mental models. It wasn't like he had a book on, here's uh, mental models for dummies or something. I mean, Munger's also like, I think one of the smartest people on the planet. Um, but that notwithstanding, it's like, you just have to have a natural curiosity and read outside of the normal stuff that you're typically reading. So if you're doing data science, I would say like, um, read stuff out of left field too. I don't know what that could be, anything really. But it's just about developing the habit of developing a natural curiosity and letting, there's a, there's a notion of compound, the compound interest of knowledge, right? Um, actually, there's a really good book here um, by Gautam Bain uh, called The Joys of Compounding. Actually, can't really say it's my stupid background. Um, uh, I have to fit up with the Star Wars guys over here. So, um, but in all seriousness, the um, the whole no the whole notion is just you know develop uh, compound knowledge over time. I mean, that is your biggest investment. There's no shortcut though. You're not going to get like a hundred mental models in a day, or even uh, you know a year or something. It's like this this takes um, an insane amount of time to build. So, but there's no one direction to choose either. But I know Munger he would bring up things like. Um, know the basics of chemistry, know the basics of physics, know the basics of psychology, know the basics of all these, uh, all these, like the big ideas in the world, right? That's what shapes um, human knowledge. And to him, that creates ultimately what he calls the Lollapalooza effect, um, where all of a sudden, because you have all these different ideas, um, you're able to synthesize new ideas that nobody's ever thought of before. Uh, because you have such, such, but this is a completely individual. There's no one way to do it. Um, I read a ton. I probably read one or two books a week in addition to like a ton of articles because I, that's just how I've been wired since day one. Um, not, I don't, I, not everyone's going to do that, but I think the most important thing is just make the investment to learn every day. That's it. Even if it's 20 minutes, you're still better off than you were, you know, the day before, depending on what you're learning. Yeah, and just don't, just don't do like chewing on or some crazy shit like that. So yeah, well, just um, just start where you are. I mean, like read read what you love until you love to read, right? That's uh, mm -hmm. that's a, a good way to you know develop a yeah. habit of reading. Uh, Eric says he likes listening to Alan Watts to think about uh, life in a new awesome. way. Alan Watts is awesome. You should listen to like the ten Akira the Dawn and Alan Watts albums that are out there. They are freaking phenomenal. Uh, I'll send you. I'll send you a, a good one in a second. Uh, Joys of compounding. Uh, Gautam Bade about to add that to the. Uh, you know, get delivered this weekend at some point. Um, Eric has a question. Let's go to Eric. Eric has the actual data science question, but you know, I'm all about these philosophical discussions. So I love this shit. Uh, but Eric gets back on course. Yeah. So let's see here. A little bit of background. So my question is about Bayes' theorem. And the explain it like I'm five version of it, because I have like, I have a little bit of exposure to it, and, and, but I always get posteriors and priors kind of like turned around in my mind or whatever. Um, and then the reason that I'm curious about it is because I read a really interesting article, I think from a few years ago about LinkedIn uses a, or used, I'm sure they've updated it by now, but they have an algorithm for detecting spammy um, accounts by the names, uh, by just by using your name. And I guess they supplemented it with email, but they got really good results just by using your first and your last name. So they don't need a lot of other information about you. And the paper that they shared was them using a naive Bayes classifier and they broke down the words or the names into three grams, um, including like a 
start character. So if your name is well, Eric, it would be like start dollar sign ER, then ERI, RIC, and then IC slash or something for an end, a beginning and an end character. And so I'm, I don't understand how a naive base classifier works. And I was hoping to get the explain it like I'm five version of that from somebody here. Go to Matt Housley if he's still in the building. Is he? On the I'm in the building. I don't have a super good explanation, actually. Um, maybe I can prepare something for next week. Uh, <laughs> but the, the original base theorem is actually just set theory. Um, I won't try to go through that now, but you can basically figure out the original base theorem just by using Venn diagrams. Um, but yeah, does someone have a better explanation of what like naive base classifiers and how those work? Yeah. Uh uh, Tom or Andrew or anyone, just an ELI five of naive base well, well, prior probability represents what is originally believed before new evidence is introduced, and posterior probability takes this new information into account. Guilty of Google searching that. So uh, I, I guess. Uh, Let's drill it down a little bit further, Eric. Is there a specific part of the uh, naive Bayes algorithm which is uh, making you, you know, have uh, a headache? I guess I just don't. I guess I just don't understand how a. I don't understand how a naive Bayes classifier is classifying. <laughs> I guess I just. I just don't understand. Like, is it taking? If we have, yeah, I just don't even. I can't figure out from what pieces of those three grams or something or anything. It's like taking in to update its update its model every single time to to train to train the model. You know what I mean? Like I get the idea with like a uh linear regression, you know, and you've got your and the, you know, minimizing your errors and that, but I just don't understand what's happening. I, I just don't understand what's happening with like I mean do you understand what's happening in Bayes theorem itself? Yeah. That's good. Because I would Probably use that as a starting point. as well point. as I wish I did. Right. So I'd start there. Um, yes. you're basically, you're just using Bayes to classify something at the end of the day. I mean, it, it literally is that, right? But in order to understand Bayes, you, you need to understand, I think, sort of what Matt was talking about and Tom was talking about, which is, um, so how much of probability do you understand? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you when I get stuck. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. What, how would you describe this, Matt? I mean, set theory, I think, is a good basis for this. Maybe we don't need to get too complicated, but you, you wanted to explain like it's five anyway, right? So um, just real quick, real yes. quick. Eric, let's say you're just looking at a brand new field of data and you've got all these possibilities, but then one of those possibilities happens. Well, that possibility just kind of narrowed the field of now what's possible after that. So when you get down to it, Bayes is like saying, what's the probability of something happening given something that's already happened? Now, with these engrams, it's just a chain of that. Okay. And so this prior, oh boy, I can hear myself. Anyway, is is kind of saying, well, based on what evidence I have, I'm going to make a guess. But the posterior is like saying, now I'm going to look back. Now I'm going to use hindsight. Now I'm going to I'm going to borrow some great wisdom, and and I'm sure he got it from someone else. But 
Bruce Lee. You know, when he started out, a kick was just a kick. And then as he wanted to improve his knowledge, oh, a kick was so exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Hartford. A kick was so much more than a kick. And, you know, you hear this thing about, I don't fear the man that is that knows 10,000 moves. I fear the man that know, has practiced one move 10,000 times. You know, it's this spirit. So, Eric, what we're sharing with you today is going to help. But when you really get in there and sweat and bleed through coding it from scratch with the math and everything without modules and stuff, and then you get to the end of it, you're going to look back at this conversation and go, oh, it's like what Joe and Matt and Tom were saying. It's just the possibility of something happened, given this, the other things already happened. But now you'll be seeing it with the fog cleared. You've, you've marched through the details of that canyon and gone through all those obstacles numerically. And now you're looking back and you're going, oh, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, start yeah. no, you, start, you start noticing bays around you all the time, though, right? So, like, when you, uh, yes. when you look outside your window, for example, right, you look at the weather, right? Um, so, I mean, these are classic, kind of classic uh, beginner examples when you talk about bays is, well, okay, so it rained yesterday. So what's the chance it's going to rain today? What's the chance it's going to rain if it rained um, today? What's the chance it's going to be sunny tomorrow and so forth, right? So because you're basing uh, a, a prediction, you know, a, a, an outcome based upon um, uh, past probabilities and, and what's happened. Um, so you want to be able to, but are you, aware, are you familiar with what conditional probabilities are? So I, I'm going to condition basically like there's a probability something may happen based upon something else. Mm -hmm. Right. So coin flicks are, uh, are a good example. Right. And so forth. Um, sure. So, so yeah, I always, uh, no, I was going to say, I always see it the same way too, Joe, like uh, for base, my, my go-to use case is kind of like, what are the pro probabilities that I will bring my umbrella out uh, uh, today or tomorrow? Right. And this is going to be based on the probability that it will rain. Right. So if yeah. the chances of raining is high, then probably the probability of me bringing an umbrella will be high. So that's how I understand it. And the way you're describing your use case, Eric, it seems like they're looking at uh, the probability of an account being a fraud based on the structure of the account or past structure of accounts being fraud, something like that. So it's uh, it's something I've never uh tested myself in terms of understanding, but it's it's cool that you bring that up. It makes me uh reinforce my uh understanding of that of that notion. So thanks for that for that question. That's really cool. So if I'm understanding, it's kind of saying, <clears throat> thinking back on you know on the names thing. If we're taking little three grams, then it would be saying we're looking at these little chunks of three or could be four or five letters or whatever, right? But let's just say three. So we'd be taking these chunks of three and looking at 60 million names worth, which is going to be, you know, well over a hundred million little inputs. And then is it essentially just making the model more and more confident with each one of like saying like, this is a good one. This is a good one. This is a good one. This person's name, that's JHJ. It's probably it's a bad one and then you know in that way when somebody so it's like training it as to building up that probability so that it recognizes those strings of letters is that just kind of the basic ideas like with like you what you said of like the naive bases it's seeing it's looking back at what it's seen before 
and then updating itself with new information that it's received. Right, so it's conditioning on basically, yeah. I mean, what what, what maximizes the probability of this incoming of occurring? Right, is what you're trying to get at. So, if you don't understand Bayes, I would say like a really good a really good example that I think hits home uh, in today's world is um, study how Bayes is used to de to determine um, false positive uh, COVID tests, for example, hmm. or false negatives, either one. Um, I think that's so false positives and false negatives with respect to Bayes is a very good way to, I think, concretely um, learn the concept. And then naive Bayes, once you understand Bayes, now it's just a matter of like applying that to multiple instances of, uh, of you know, uh, probabilities and classifications. So that's how I would do it. But you know, a lot of the descriptions I've seen of naive Bayes, I, I don't, over the, over the years, I don't really like how it's described really, because it makes it seem more complicated than it really is. So. That's just me. Matt may have a different opinion. He just thinks in Venn diagrams all day, I guess. So, Well, I mean, I, I think stepping back from naive Bayes to the broader use of Bayes theorem in mm. probability and research, one of the concerns is that sometimes Bayes theorem is used in research papers to sort of assert snake oil by using a really ridiculous prior that's not justified. And you have to watch out for that and say, well, what happens if I tweak this prior? But, you know, using the naive Bayes classifier algorithm, that's more robust because you're doing iteration and other processes that are meant to solve this problem. Cool. You also find as you dig into this, there's, a, there's religious camps of uh, frequentists and, and, and Bayesians. Yeah. Uh, they like to have holy wars with each other. It's hilarious. I have, I have read a fair bit about that. Um, yeah. There is such thing as a Bayesian frequentist. There is. There's an interesting paper that you can read about it. Uh, that sounds like a interesting. Kind of a like a, a schizophrenic or something? Is that? Uh... <laughs> Throw it in the chat. I want to read this. this That's like a mental mental disorder. Yeah. I don't believe you. I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, to what Tom was just saying about the mathematical explanation. I mean, the Venn diagram is really just you know, assuming two things are true, you're in both Venn di you're in both circles, <clears> or you're in one circle or the other, and you, it's just counting at that point. Like the theorem itself just comes from counting in a Venn diagram. That's it. I think he, he wasn't he like studying peas or something when he came up with this. I think it was something as like. Uh, it was, I think he was like, wasn't he a, uh, like Thomas Bayes, he was a, some, something like a, uh, a priest or something. And he was, uh, I thought he was doing something as, as simple as just like counting something in a garden or You're something. You're getting confused with Mendel. That's Mendel. Mendel. Okay. Is that Mendel? Okay. I don't yeah. know. I can never keep my people straight. So I think, I think Bayes was a priest, but I don't think he was the peas guy. Yeah. That was Mendel. Yeah. Hey, excellent he question. carrots guy. Eric got us, uh, Got stumped. And for further proof that you don't actually have to know every single thing about data science to be a data scientist. We still gotta look shit up sometimes and that figure it out. Um but it helps. <laughs> but no one can do it. It helps, yes. Uh all right. Does uh anybody else have a question? Uh I mean, I got a question that uh oh actually Matt, go for it. I see your hands up. Yeah, so I've been getting confused with PCA, like principal component analysis lately. I'm not very clear on like how it works and how we do it, use it for dimensionality reduction. Uh, kind of like Eric, does anyone have like a, a short explanation or something that can, or boil it down or something? <laughs> uh, Tom's hand is up, so let's go with Tom. All right, this is going to be more like a fairy tale. I hope you don't mind. So, do all the work you possibly can in original space. 
But when you're struggling with original space, there is a magical space called eigenspace. And in that space, you would be hard pressed to not find that all your features have become magically decoupled. But please don't make the mistake of thinking that because all the features that are in eigenspace are decoupled and you can figure out which of the features that are PCA features that can be removed because their eigenvalues are really small. Don't let that fool you into thinking that if you translated those PCA features back to original space, that you've reduced your dimensionality. You've only reduced it in eigenspace, which again is this magical fairyland space. But it the the PCA is super powerful because it will decouple, it will remove all collinearity, is what I'm saying. But it doesn't mean you've eliminated original features. And if you ever read a blog post that says, and you don't need to worry about the eigenvectors, they don't really tell us anything. Please don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. You need to use those eigenvectors because when your, your stakeholders say, oh, that's cool, you found this magic space, but what does that tell us about the original space? Uh, uh, use the eigenvectors to say, well, this, this PCA feature is composed of these original space features, and this PCA feature is composed of these. Oh, wow, that gets complicated. Yeah, but it sure had a lot of good modeling benefits. So it, it, it just adds to the burden of what you've got to explain when you go to PCA, but it can sure save you in a clinch situation. I hope that helped. And let me stay on to answer any questions you have after that. But that's kind of a fairy tale intro. Okay, so focus on the eigenvectors, the eigenspace instead of just instead of just like just running the PCA just randomly. Just understand that when you go into the eigenspace, which you've applied PCA and you, you've trans, it's not the original space. It's a it's a new perspective completely, and it it takes explanatory energy to make it clear to any stakeholders. It it increases the burden of our data storytelling about the machine learning development pipeline or the machine learning pipeline development. Excuse me. Yeah, Matt, and, please. and it might be helpful to step back a little bit as well and just talk yeah. more broadly about the problem of in linear algebra, what tends to happen. And that is, say I have 80 features and I just toss them into my machine learning model. It turns out that a lot of them might be correlated with each other in various ways. Um, so if you, if you take a bunch of measurements of various types of objects, then that you might have correlations between those different types of objects be, or measurements because really the, the objects all have the same shape. And so you increase the length, it also increases the width, for example. Um, say you're looking at cubes and taking measurements the different and then throwing all those in as parameters in your model. And so fundamentally, what this whole class of techniques is designed to do is find, is to get rid, sort of compress and remove that excess data that's correlated. Um, in, in terms of linear algebra, a nice way to think about this is that you have, suppose you have three-dimensional space and you have a plane that's inside that three-dimensional space. And so if you look at the coordinates, there are three coordinates for each point in that plane. So it looks like, oh, I have clearly have like three coordinates or three features that I care about, but really it's just two-dimensional behind the scenes. And so in some sense, what PCA is designed to do is find that plane for you, like find the subspace that really counts 
it's more statistical than that because you're not looking for an absolute plane. You're looking at correlations and things. But fundamentally, the idea is to reduce out correlated features where possible. Um, there are a couple of other important uh, techniques like this for dimension reduction. If you've heard of manifold learning, manifold learning is a similar idea, except that you assume instead of your plane passing through the origin, you can have any kind of surface. It could be a sphere or something else, uh, but it still exists. You, you've got a surface inside a higher dimensional space, and you're trying to find the, the, the surface itself and kind of project down. Um, another one that's very popular in uh, test design, so when they design the ACT, or the SAT, they use something called factor analysis. Once again, it's another uh, dimension reduction technique. And I don't totally remember what the differences are. It seems like um, factor analysis is way less popular in data science, but I, I don't remember the reasons for that exactly. I'd have to go back and look them up. So it's because it's not deep learning. Yeah, well, <laughs> true. <laughs> and the other so, way to think about it too is with awesome. the, uh, if, so I mean, in Matt's example, if you had 80 features, right? And say you needed it now down to three, you're trying to find the three that have the most variance, right? And, and disregarding the other, uh, maybe 76, 77 that, that, that are mainly correlated. So. So do a co-step then, then Tom. So uh, I guess Matt and, uh, and Tom and everyone else has been commenting specifically on the stakeholder side of this is when you're explaining it to someone who doesn't really enjoy getting into the linear algebra of it or doesn't really enjoy getting into i mean the word eigen maybe scares them a little bit right um is it is it uh, reasonable to start talking about your eigen space features as um effectively a proxy for their real world features so you say like i mean would it make sense to explain to them that i'm taking all of your 80 to 90 different concerns that all of these different data points that are coming through and I'm generating these simplified proxies for some of them. And then we do our actual clustering or our classification based on these proxies that inform us about your 80 to 90 features at a resolution that makes more sense for the model. This is how, if, if I had to build a stakeholder who was asking me how PCA would work, I would say like this, like, look, man, like I'm trying to build your machine learning model to answer your question, solve your problem. But this is a ton of features. They're, they're all kind of useful, but they're all useful in a lot of different ways. So what I did was I just kind of, you know, instead of having 80 features to deal with, like 80 columns, like that's too much for me to think about. I just kind of compressed it down to this space where I got like three or four. It's much more manageable. Not only that, if we use this smaller space of features, it captures a lot of the information that, that we would get if we had like all 80 of them. So I just did that, brought it down to this thing and uh, made something from that, which is much easier to visualize and for us to, you know, kind of get answers quickly. I, right, but yeah, that's but they're going to naturally it. want to know about a specific feature and say, okay, so how does that affect this particular lever that I pull as a, you know, in sales or whatever? Man, I'd be hard pressed to find a salesman that would actually care about that. I say, anyways. Salesforce play a badass for asking that question. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll be like, damn, bro, you might want to. Yeah, I think you're on the wrong team. So. I know this I was gonna mention stakeholders that actually ask specifically about PCAs. Like that's pretty impressive. That happens. I, yeah. I haven't experienced that. <laughs> well, we gotta get Aaron Hunsaker on here. He he works for us now and uh he he has really good stories about PCA working with stakeholders. So we'll have to have him on. Yeah, we have to get week. him on next time. Yeah. yeah. You'll like Aaron. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I'm bring him on. 
I love no, where he, he also goes. opened for the Wu Tang Clan back in the day, so he's even cooler than you think. So, right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved where Matt was going, and because he's giving the explanation we would want to know as fellow data scientists. The explanation I was giving was trying to help a stakeholder understand why we had to resort to PCA. And I probably wouldn't even tell, use the words PCA necessarily, but I think it's important for us to all remember, when you first apply PCA, you are not at all reducing the number of dimensions. But once you get in magic space, I'm going to keep calling it that for a bit, because now you have strength values called eigenvalues, you can realize, oh, if I look at the, if I Pareto order by magnitude, the eigenvalues, and I do accumulation and I see I get up to these last 10 and they're adding less than 1% to the value of the model. Oh, just dump those. But what you can't count on is just because you dump those, if you went back to original space, you'll find you have just as much collinearity or more. It's like Matt was saying, that unique perspective that going into eigenspace gives you, it's just looking at the whole hyperspace in a way that gets rid of all the collinearity, which is magical. It's wonderful. But again, if you really want to get insights from what features are most important, well, you can't just say, oh, this PCA feature is more important. That won't really mean anything to the stakeholders. But if you say this most important feature that we have for the model is a combination of these, now that's valuable. Thank you very much. Uh, very excellent discussion, PCA, from a bunch of different angles. Um, Matt, Matt uh, Blaza, that was. Thank you for kicking that off. Um, any other questions or follow up on that PCA discussion? Yeah, like, I mean, when it comes to stuff like that, like for me, it's good enough to kind of intuitively understand or know the explanation. But fuck, man, if I was in this office hour myself and somebody asked me that question, I would not know how to answer. So thank you guys for being here and uh, having with that. Let's go to uh, Mark. Mark, Mark has some uh, news for us. Yeah, I, I don't really have a, a question per se. This a huge thank you to this whole group. Uh, I just had like a big win at work and it was based on all the feedback y'all provided me. Um, essentially, you know, hearing from y'all just like, hey, don't ask, just do for, for certain things. That's essentially what I did. And also just reframing my hackathon into, into something positive. So essentially for, for, my, for my hackathon, um, you know, I've been asking engineering for the past year, like, hey, give me access to to create data sets within our system um, to give context, our data is really complex. Um, we have like our, our our regular database system, and then a homegrown kind of layer on top for additional security for things. And so um, it's not really straightforward. And so I basically just taught myself for my hackathon just how to engage and create my own data sets um, for 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 my project. And then when I presented that, everyone was like, "Oh my god, data science can do this." Um, that's amazing. And so the head of engineering approved my, my pull request to get it merged, but also they finally gave me read and write access to create data sets, which I've been like asking for for like a year. So I finally have this and create our own data assets, um, which is like really cool. But more importantly, after like my pitch, I'm focusing on the positives for my hackathon. My manager was like, yo, this is gonna be a top, top ticket item. 
like spend the rest of the month just focusing only on this hackathon project, like make it to the end. Um, so that was just really cool. So shout out to all y'all's feedback um, and really redirecting me to the right path to, to really have success. Man, that's awesome, man. That's that's so dope, man. I'm super, super excited for you. And yeah, big shout out to everybody that that comes, you know, every weekend sharing their their wisdom, sharing their knowledge and just literally helping shape people's careers, helping shape people's journey, trajectory and, and all that stuff. Uh, every one of you guys that show up. I mean, it's been it's been a while. I think it's been like since you guys started coming, everybody started coming. It was probably like mid-October of last year. So for a year straight, people have been coming on to this thing every Friday and just dropping amazing knowledge. And and it's so awesome to to hear the positive effects of that. Uh, congratulations, Mark. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some more good news from, from, from you and everyone else. Oh, no, my friends, any other questions? Uh, I have a question for people. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I'm curious, what are people using these days to learn um, data science and machine learning? Uh, what do you mean using in terms of like uh, software? I mean, materials, uh, learning materials, courses, books. I mean, what, what, what are people finding effective? What are people finding not effective? That's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, me personally, I like to read about it. And like the way I would, I mean, it's probably not answering your question, but the way I'd learn about stuff is I'll read about it at a high level, find some hands-on examples, start working through it, through it, see where I get stuck, where something's happening. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why is that happening? How's that happening? And uh, then I'll go back to learning materials, try to dig deeper, try to get underlying concepts, stuff like that. Um, but for me, it's, it's mostly books. I like books. Um, I'll probably like the, the, my process is like this. I'll probably watch a few YouTube videos just to like prime the pump. I don't know if that's the right word, but just to like get get me in the mood for this particular topic. Uh, watch a few videos, just say, okay, great. And this is this is what let's say a recurrent neural network is. Great, cool. I see it. I got it. Then I'll go to the books, and then I'll start reading about it in books. Uh, then once I read the books, I'll go back and go through the examples in the books, and I'll drill deeper wherever I'm just like unconvinced of what's happening uh, i'd love to hear from other people i guess like for me i'm a um i'm an i'm a conversational slash uh audio kind of learner so i learn faster when i'm in a conversation like this one i, I learn faster when i'm talking to someone one-on-one -on -one about something they're working on uh, i learn faster when i'm listening to something so for me to generate that level of like just interest and investment in a, in a book to go in and learn about this chunk of stuff, right? Um, I kind of start from a YouTube video or from a Udemy course because that's cheap and easy to access, right? Um, so you access the Udemy course like that and then I watch it. I'm like, okay, I get the high level. Now let's dig deeper and deeper and deeper. By then I'm convinced that I need to go read papers about that particular topic or go down and drill into a book on that topic. Um, and it's just going to vary depending on what kind of a learner you are. I find that those conversations that I'm having at work, I've learned, like we, we have once in two weeks, we've got like a a paper read kind of session where we share, okay, we've read this paper, this is what we think about it and we discuss it, right? I learned so much more in that session than I do in the like three to five hours of that week that I spent, you know, reading other papers that are outside of my area. But I'm actually curious as like a, someone who's really invested in the education piece of it, Monica, what are your thoughts on how do you identify how 
you best learn and how do you map that to resources available? Yeah, for sure. Um, this is really weird because I literally uh, posted something on learning, uh, different types of learning styles yesterday. <laughs> um, so depending on if you're visual, auditory, you know, hands-on, you can go to different resources. And also depending on if you have a specific question versus if you're just generally curious about something. So if you have a specific question, I usually Google number one resource to go to Stack Overflow is something super helpful as well, or um, any uh, more smaller like mini courses that are more scoped out that can answer that question versus if you're just generally curious, you don't know anything about a specific topic, you can have you know, they have courses that are like specialty, like data science specialty course, which covers like nine different topics and all of that. Um, I also like tutorial, like sandbox sites. Um, W3 Schools Mode is another one where you can just go in there and just start doing something, breaking things, I think is a really good way to learn as well um, to figure out how things are working on the back end. Mark, go for it. So for for me, like how I kind of uh, quickly try to learn things, especially for like machine learning or just data in general, um, I try to start really high level and just drill in really fast. Um, and so for me, it's like a matter of repetition. So like I get a new concept. I try to find like, what's the intro five minute quick, like explain like I thought, like I'm five explanation of a concept. Um, then I'll go find like a more in-depth, maybe like a lecture or something like that. Um, and then the next step, um, I go find articles like towards data science, something like really high level um, or like analytics video. I'm, I'm butchering that name, but, um, but essentially that's the next step. And then from there, I will go find textbooks. So now I have like all the key terms, the words, I go through the textbooks and the thing is like, I'm, it sounds like a lot, but I'm like, I'm watching things two times fast. I'm skimming. The thing is not to like really comprehend deeply. It's just get repetitions over and over again. So that way I have a set of resources to know where to look for. And then where the real learning is, is that I try to implement a project. Implementing a project is where I really learn the most, but doing all the steps ahead of time gives me a plethora of resources to go back to. Um, but also like gives me a good foundation to move forward with. So I'm not just like randomly applying code from Stack Overflow. I can actually like think through the problem for it. And then to solidify it, and I don't do this every time because it's very intensive. I like creating tutorials. So like I have a few on GitHub of tutorials and things to do. And like teaching others and mentoring others is like where I really learn a lot because I it's like to share it to <laughs> explain it to someone else. I actually have to learn it and like understand it and be prepared for questions. I think that's where that conversational aspect that Coastal was mentioning really kicks in. Just just having to talk about it and uh, you know to bounce those ideas around. Uh, Andrew got some great uh, uh, response here too. If anybody else wants to answer this question, let me know. Let's hear from Andrew. Andrew Trell. If there's multiple Andrews, that's the one I refer to. Go for it. Hey everybody. Yeah. Um, just quickly to uh, some of the points. I think um, to what Mark just said, whenever I have been asked to do a brown bag on a particular topic, I mean, I'm learning a lot out of interest and casting a fairly wide net. But when I have to then put that into a training resource for a brown bag um, or even explain to our CEO um, or some of our engineers, that is when I really go down the rabbit hole. 
and I will come ready. I was doing one on uh, NLP recently and I had history going back to like the 50s cryptography. I went down a very deep rabbit hole, but it was enjoyable. And so I think that with a combination of exploring various GitHub repositories, I've been very pleased with some of the training materials on um, ODSC, the Open Data Science uh, Conference, um, particularly some of the analytics. Uh, they have some really good professors, actually. So I'm based in North Carolina. We have at North Carolina State University, the Institute for Advanced Analytics, a guy by the name of uh, Ark Barr. He actually taught some of these courses really into some very interesting um, programs for fraud analysis, like uh, I think it's Cade 5, Cade 6. One is a destiny character. I forget which one. Um, and so those materials have been great. Um, I really like, I think, as some other folks have mentioned, kind of starting on YouTube, getting excited about things that build some momentum. Uh, then you can get into reading some of the materials, exploring GitHub repos, and then sharing that with colleagues and getting conversations getting other people excited about it. And then you can feed off of that. Um, so that's been, that's been great uh, on our end. Uh, and then I will, after this, if I may ask if anyone has implemented any um, proper graph databases, because I've been tasked on that recently. And so I'm curious if anybody has used those in their data analytics. Thank you very much. Graph databases, I've seen, um... Uh, what's his name? David Knickerbocker. I haven't seen in a while. David, if you're tuning in by chance, we'll miss you. Uh, come come hang out. Um, let's see. There's uh, a lot of good comments coming in. Um, uh, Mark says, ODSC is how he got his first data science job. That conference holds a special place in his heart. Speaking of conferences, don't forget to sign up for Dedicated happening on October 5th. Be sure to be there. I'll be presenting at Dedicated. I'll also be presenting at the ML conference on October 15th. Uh, so hopefully you guys get to uh, tune into that one. Um, uh, we'll get to your graph databases question, Andrew. Uh, but first, let's go back to Mark. Mark said he had something interesting to, uh, to share with us. And I'd love to, to see the, uh, uh, what you're talking about, the, the technical aspects of something. Go for it, Mark. Uh, definitely. So I wasn't planning on having this question because I was literally coding this in the middle of this um, and trying to get some, I, I wasn't expecting my output to actually come out um, as quickly because it's like a million rows. Uh, but essentially, as if you all remember, I'm working on a uh, imbalanced classification problem for predicting neonatal death within uh, 28 days. Uh, and uh, this project I'm kind of doing with my mentees together. And so we finally have output. Um, last week, we kind of just did like, um, you know, here's just a plain random forest model. We haven't done anything special to it. It's probably gonna be a bad model. I've now implemented smoke, which is a resampling method to account for the imbalance. And again, applied the, just a random forest model, no tuning yet. And so um, I got my output. I, I thought maybe it might be interesting. So you can actually sh uh, see the graphs I have and the output. Um, and just to get some feedback, because um, I have some ideas for next steps, because it's still it's not at the level I want after doing smoke, which is expected because I haven't done any tuning. But before I go into tuning and whatnot, I'm just curious if there's any more like simpler steps that I should consider. Like, you know, I can go down the rabbit hole, and make it more technical, but it's always like, how can I simplify the problem or maybe simplify the data in a way that might make things better? Um, I've already did some feature importance. I've already talked to uh, stakeholders as well, who are like uh, subject matter experts to get an idea on some important values. 
Um, but uh, I was just curious, one, just to see output and then also just have a, co- a cool conversation. Does that sound good to y'all? That, cool. That sounds, that sounds like you're going to talk about data science. That, what, yeah. Yes, yes, let's talk about data science. All right. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, I'm, so, I'm going share my screen. Yeah. Can y'all yeah, see definitely. my screen? Yes, absolutely. Um, awesome. Yeah. So um, essentially, going back up. Um, so here's the model without doing smoke. Um, this is the training data. So of course it's going to look nice. And then this is, uh, my validation after I split. Um, so I have uh, train validate and test. So this is my validate set. Um, and so area under curve, um, confusion matrix, and then, um, you know, the various precision recall F1 scores. I'm gonna skip past this because again, that didn't account for imbalance. I implement smote, um, and as you can see, you know, before smoke, this was the, the, you know, kind of distribution of events, um, very imbalanced after smoke. Now they're both uh, balanced um, for, for the outcome variable. So I retrained it again. And so now here is my curve, again, training set, set so not really expecting much. Um, so here is the random forest model. The area under the curve increased uh, for that. But interestingly enough, um, for my F1 score, it actually decreased <laughs> um, compared to the other model, which is really interesting. And the reason why I'm choosing the F1 score is because, um, because like healthcare, um, you know, it's a, there's, there is a price for false positives and false negatives. Um, false negatives would be the worst, but false positives would be bad because like if we say like this newborn is going to have at risk for dying, they go under like unnecessary procedures to put them at higher risk, right? So that's why I want the F1 score to kind of balance that. And so for me, I'm like, wow, I'm really surprised that the F1 score went down <laughs> after doing smoke. Um, and again, I haven't done any tuning, but uh, based on what you're seeing, and I can show particular graphs if you like, um, you know, what would be your next steps thinking through this problem? Um, you know, and I, I literally just just coded this and it's got the output. So I haven't had a chance to think about it, but I thought like, <clears throat> that would be great to talk to to figure out next steps. Yeah, Tom. Let's go to let's uh, let's go to you yeah. and um, folks. Just, I'm just gonna step yeah. away for a quick second, but Tom, go for yeah, it. I'm gonna stop sharing. Yeah, just briefly. Um, great explanation, Mark. And um, I'm working on something related just for fun. And uh, so I I don't know if you saw my comment yet, but if you're trying XG Boost, uh, which isn't always the best, but it's frequently very good. Um, mm-hmm. It has a balancing thing in it, but regarding the metrics, um, I think we can over over focus on F1, especially in medical stuff. To me, yeah. recall is the bomb. Precision, mm. precision just means how tightly clustered are things, really? How well yeah. clustered are they? But recall is actually the individual recalls for each case. That's your predictive accuracy when you get down to it. Can you and, briefly describe recall again? I always mix yes. up precision and recall. And it's like, I have to review it every single time. In fact, I want to encourage everyone to just look through my recent post feed. I've been dealing with these things because I got frustrated myself. Like, wait, let's put it in, in just conceptual terms. So when you think of recall, it's what we've predicted correctly over everything we would have predicted correctly if it was a perfect model. So the the model we have for predictive accuracy 
over the model, the perfect model prediction, basically. And but the F1 score is really just the harmonic mean. And I'll, I'll make that simpler. Of yeah, I've actually never seen your post on the on that post. It was really good. Okay. Like the little Thank sliding you. thing. Well, this is a little different. When when you're talking F1 score, it's just the harmonic mean of precision and recall. But I'm like, sometimes we make too big a deal out of precision. Uh, and so it's kind of good to break. You can use what's called the F beta score, which helps you weight those against one another. But quite frankly speaking, I think what you really care about is the recall on each of those. And and but if you if you oh, and the precision, by the way, is is just saying the number we got right over the total number we predicted as positive. Well, Well, that's what. Yeah, go ahead, Greg. So, sorry about that. I think for me, I think I, I, I empathize with what Mark is saying because I've been in that situation too where both recall and precision are important and you have to resort to F1. For example, in the healthcare piece, false positive can hurt you as much as false negative. Of course, you're going to have one that has strong, you know, uh, risk, stronger risk than the other. But it's kind of like hard, like, like one of the, the explanation, or I guess the great theory I have for why F1 went down is because you gave the model more data to, to, to look for, for errors, right? To, to, to co- commit more errors. So you're committing more false positives. You're committing more false uh, 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 negative. I, I'm assuming that's why it, it, it went down. But uh, it's kind of a, a difficult thing to say, right? What? Once you know F1 is your best metric, how do you ensure that's what you need to go by? Or how do you ensure that, no, it's not recall, it should be precision? So if you take the time... That's exactly what I'm struggling with. (laughs) Yeah. For each problem, you really need to take the time to understand what's most important. And then once you do... Once you look through the myriad of metrics that are available for confusion matrices, do take the time to really think about, well, what does that really mean? For example, when you look at the accuracy equation, it's kind of overwhelming looking at first until you realize, oh, it's just the number of correct predictions divided by all cases. But the accuracy alone, and accuracy to me is more important than F1 score. I'm not saying F1 score is not good. You just got to put it in the context of what is the real need of this particular classification problem. But I mean, that would vary based on the specific problem, right? Like, so like, yes, I mean, the moment I'm doing a semantic segmentation, like kind of task where I've got significant class imbalance, accuracy gets thrown because if you've got a multi-class problem and you've got one, like a real imbalance where there's like, only 10, 20 of your pixels are one particular class and everything else is another, you might get 99% accuracy, but completely incorrectly, you know, classify those 10, 20, like outlier pixels. Um, yeah, it, 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 what you said, Cost of it, it really depends, like for a certain case, getting a false negative could be like life-threatening. Whereas a, a false positive 
okay, you're going to get the treatment even though you didn't need it, but to not get the treatment or the procedure when you really needed it. So you bend that model to reduce those false negatives as much as possible. That might actually lower your accuracy, but if you've really lowered your false negatives, awesome. Right. And, and, and that's coming from the perspective of like a screener being an important tool in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a quick question I have too is like, so the reason why you don't want to use accuracy is because like in balance, um, it, you could just like say like everything's false, right? And it'll have a high accuracy because it's super imbalanced, right? Well, after smoke, things are balanced now. So would accuracy then be an okay metric uh, for just the training uh, data set? My, my hunch is no, but uh, I'm just trying to think through it. It depends on your problem. It depends on your, on your goals. And I, I was about to say business goals, but yours aren't business goals. Yours are medical goals or something related. It, yeah. You really got to define those goals with classification. And then one more thing, just like thinking through kind of like, again, this kind of goes back to the business use case. So I'll share my screen real quick. So again, we have our true negative, which is good, our true positive, and then our false negative, false positive, which is really bad. The argument I'm making is like thinking about the use case, like the clinical workflow. You, we could argue that we can just actually just throw out false positives completely because we say like, if we think that um, like, I'm actually gonna take a step back. I had an idea, but I'm, I, after I say it out loud, that doesn't make sense. So never mind. <laughs> yeah, because I was gonna say, if you by the time you figure out it's a false positive, you've already administered, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, never it's mind. too late for the patient, right? <laughs> Let's so go to ARPIT real quick. Action, that's what matters. Yeah. Go to ARPIT. I see ARPIT might have some insight for us here. Go for it, man. Yeah. I was going to say, like, <clears throat> have you, Mark, have you tried like upscaling and down, down sorry, down, up, up sampling and down sampling? Uh, Could you rather than define like what mode. that is, real quick, for me? So it's mode is like more advanced uh, version of that, like where to balance the data when you have like not 50, 50%. Upscaling is basically it's use upscale the minority to the levels to balance and mm -hmm. then the downscale you downscale the majority to the minority level if it makes sense definitely i think um i actually wrote a note in here i think that so i think I, i've heard that as like oversampling so i said like the difference from oversampling is that smoke attempts to recreate the variance seen within the data set um as mainly oversampling can result overfitting um I remember pulling that from an article and like I'm reusing code from like, from like a year ago. So I don't know how true that is, but that was the, the reason being um, uh, Mark from a year ago said that oversampling led to overfitting, but Mark from a year ago also knew less. So I'm curious if, if that's come, uh, come across for other people. Yeah, no, I, I'm saying that because I was working in this problem customer churn problem and I had the same issue because churn, churn is imbalanced data set so I, I i did try all three i started with oversampling undersampling and smart surprisingly for my case i got better result again like better result in terms of metrics from undersampling so it, it, it depends like you have to try and uh, then you can figure it out if it's working for you so i think that's a really great point because i was asking like what's a simpler thing than going straight to the feature tuning and i think a simpler thing would be for me like actually go back to like the sampling method and like just like recopy the the kind of the the positives um, to to balance that. So I, I really like that. 
Yeah. If I like, if I conceptually think of Smote, it's like we have all these features and there's a feature space, right? N-dimensional space. And we draw a hyperplane through this N-dimensional space. And here is one of our samples that we care about, minority sample. And what we're trying to do with Smote is create a synthetic point that is very close and similar to that particular or general minority case, right? I mean, conceptually, that's how I like to think of smoke. I don't know if that's right or not, but I'm wondering, like, uh, like there must be some thing that implements it must have some name, but would you be able to synthetically generate uh, rows of data by looking only at the minority class and then for each feature of the minority class, each column, say, okay, here is the closest distribution for this particular you know, column. Could be gamma, could be normal, could be whatever. And then when you populate a new row, just pick a random value from that distribution that you fit on that column. And then do that for every single. That is a worthy experiment you're describing, Harpreet. That, that's the uh, curiosity, the experimentation that we have to do sometimes. Don't get completely locked into the current tools. It's like if you own a great table saw, you're going to have to build a jig every once in a while to make a certain cut. And that's what you're talking about, building a new jig for, for balancing classes. I don't know if anyone... Oh, yeah, I've already said it. Sorry. But again, Mark, I think you're getting it. If you take the time to really figure out what's important to this particular classification problem, then it'll become apparent very quickly in very simple terms. Oh, I need to really reduce false negatives. And, and if I increase my false positives, that's not as big a deal as decreasing my false negatives. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying in many cases, that could be the goal. And I think we can get so lost in the confusion matrix metrics and they get confusing and we lose insight on what the heck we're really trying to do in that classification problem. Yeah. Wow. No, this, this conversation has been so, so helpful. I literally have like two hours <laughs> I'm meeting with my mentees to go over this. So speaking of like doing to teach and learn. <laughs> uh, so this is super helpful. Y'all equip me with a lot of thoughts. I can just bring to my mentees just to start have a really good conversation with them about this. Right on. Uh, great question, Mark. Uh, let's go to, we'll, we'll consider Andrew's question, the, the final question. If anybody has any insight into this, uh, I think thematically it is around graph databases. Uh, and I've seen, a, man, I've seen a few people talk about graph databases. Eric looks like he's still here. Yes, I think you might be able to speak to that. I think I saw you post something about that. Uh, Andrew, go for it. Yeah, it's just we've had um, some interest uh, from some of the folks that we work with on several things, like different stages. Like first is basically your like enterprise knowledge graph, which is not really a data analytics question at the first uh, glance of it, but just kind of capturing some of the institutional relationships that a lot of the managers don't have eyes on. But then the second part of that is to feed in some of the institutional data and 
try and derive and infer certain relationships around some of the projects and essentially to kind of cut back on some of the research time that certain folks in the company have been spending on like looking at what we've done in the past and like then rewriting things that have already been written essentially. So uh, we've done some experimentation around uh, adding these documents as entities also to the graph database, which kind of includes our more of our talent and human capital management component right now. But uh, we're also looking at some supply chain uh, management logistics. Uh, and we'd also want to be running analytics over that. So I'm just curious if anyone has experience with that, what has been the experience, what kind of uh, product you've used, how successful it's been, what have been the pain points in deployment, maybe. This up to uh, to anyone that's got any uh, insight or wisdom to share with Andrew here. So I've never used a graph database and definitely never built a graph database. Um, but <clears throat> I know that I've attended a couple things with uh, Tiger Graph, and I don't know if you ever used Tiger Graph or if you've watched or seen any of the resources from Neo4j. But both of them. Are, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of Neo4j if you do anything with, with uh, graph database stuff. Um, but like they have a lot of really helpful and interesting resources um, that I've just found interesting. But otherwise, my stuff's mostly just been doing my own little analyses rather than building an actual database out. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been trying to migrate from uh, Neo4j into the Amazon Neptune system, and it's a completely different animal too. So that's also introducing pay points. <laughs> so Andrew, do you follow? Imagine. Do you follow uh, David Knickerbocker? Are you familiar with him? The name's come up a number of times. Uh, yeah. If you ask me what his title or where he's at, I couldn't yeah, yeah. tell you. But the name's familiar. Yeah, yeah. He's you know a member of the community. Let me. Uh, I'll send you a you know, link to his. Uh, LinkedIn. Speaking of David, we haven't seen David Langer in forever. David Langer, where you been at, man? Miss you. Uh, I'll go ahead and drop that link there. Yeah, connect with uh, David Knickerbocker. He's uh, he's cool. Um, you know, tell tell him that the artists of data science sent you during their happy hour. That it was collective voice that said that he is the go-to guy, and I'm sure he'll be able to help you. Uh, Eric also wants to share something and or or let people know about something. So uh, go for it, Eric. Yeah, so I dropped something in the chat here, um, but I also probably share it on LinkedIn as well. We're hiring on my team. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that because I didn't know we were going to be hiring until just earlier today. And so it's uh, basically it's same as my job, um, looking for someone in strategic business analytics. And so, um, like I said, I'll drop the job description, but like kind of a real overview rather than job description overview of like what what I do on a regular basis. It's like I work really close with stakeholders. I use a crap ton of SQL, um, also a lot of Tableau. Um, there's definitely room for like R and Python. We have, but like usually we have a data, like a data science team that they do a lot of like the model stuff. And so I'm doing very, very like business, business embedded and business oriented. And so the way that it works is you'll be involved with a uh, one or two different verticals. Like I work with um, the small business, small business loans, and then also like investments products. And so, you know, that this person would work with, I don't know, credit cards or deposits or mortgage refinance or something like that. Right. And so it's a great way to get involved and learn about a specific area of the business really well and be involved with 
the sales team or marketing or product or some of all of it, and you know, uh, with A/B testing and talking about just really how to how to grow and improve the business and focus on impact. That's actually one of the big things that really drew me towards Lending Tree. Is like everybody's like, okay, like really focused on impact. And anyway, worked there for a few months now. I really like it. Good place to be. So yeah, let me know if you have any other questions. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or whatever. Eric, thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you spreading the word about that. Is there like a preferred method? You said LinkedIn. Should they message you with like a resume? Should they, you know, have portfolio projects so, ready? Like, yeah. Yeah. Ahead. So I mean, I'm not. Uh, whoops. Yeah. Okay. Good. I thought I was muted. So I am uh, mostly just the messenger right now. And so uh, the biggest thing would be if you have if you have questions or something. Like I said, feel free to. Um, shoot me a message. I mean, you can send your resume if you want to, but it will be more effective if you, you know, message me and say, Hey, but then also apply for the job because I can't apply for you. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, perfect. If you guys are listening on LinkedIn, uh, those of you catching this on Sunday, when the uh, episode is released as a podcast, uh, shout out to uh, Eric. You guys probably already know how to get in touch with him. Mark, you were also doing a, a, a thing here. What's going on? Yeah, uh, we just got more headcount, which is exciting. So we just put out a position a couple of days ago. My company, uh, I'm at Humu. Um, essentially, we think about it as a organizational psychology um, to drive behavior change uh, through our product and like make work better, um, improve disparate habits at work. Um, we're specifically looking, this is a really cool role. It's like a senior analyst role for marketing and storytelling. So essentially, we want you to dive through our, our product data our survey data and potentially some customer data, bring that all together, find some like really interesting key highlights um, and tell a really compelling story. So you'll be working with the content team and the marketing team, but you'll be under the data science team. Um, it's a really cool uh, position. I can also share the, the link to the, to the role. Um, if you are interested in it, um, please uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Um, and it is US based. So, um, uh, so unfortunately, we can't uh, uh, have other people outside the country apply. All right, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, speaking of data storytelling, Brent Dykes sent me a copy of this book. Uh, I've yet to take a picture and post it on LinkedIn, but uh, it's a great book, Data Storytelling. Um, it, it's dope. Uh, we're actually going to be live on LinkedIn on October 2nd, interviewing him. Uh LinkedIn Live will see a lot of me in the month of October. Uh, not only am I doing the office hours every Friday, but you will see me live uh, on LinkedIn doing interviews for the podcast with uh, with Brent Dykes, Joe Reese, Brittany Doe. Uh, we got Daliana, uh, Lou, Andrew Jones. We got the data professor himself, uh, Mr. Chanin. I cannot say your last name. Uh, Natalie Nixon. Uh, Danny Ma as well. We got the one and only Danny Ma finally coming on the podcast. I think I'm officially cool enough for him to come onto my show. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, so October, and, and then you'll see me presenting on Dedicated. So October is going to see a lot of me on LinkedIn. Hopefully you guys will all be there and hanging out. Um, sure to check out the podcast episode that we released with Dennis Will, uh, Tales from a Data Engineer up a lot of data engineering knowledge uh don't forget that uh sunday we've got the happy or rather office hour session with comet those office hour sessions are going to be moving during the week obviously like i work at comet now so they don't want to 
sponsor the podcast anymore makes sense because you're paying me now to like work for you guys uh but i'll be doing it during my normal work hours instead of like you know time when i should be kicking it with my with my family uh so sometime during the week uh we'll be having uh the the comet ml office hour still same link still broadcasted live on linkedin through my profile um, but it'll likely be wednesday around 10 a.m but once we settle on that i'll let you know for sure uh what other news do i have to share well i mean my course is coming along just fine you know i always feel kind of sleazy shouting out my course but i feel like i'm really building something nice and i'm feeling like it's uh going to be beneficial and, and help a lot of people shout out to the people in this chat that put in so much time and effort to review it and provide me with that valuable feedback specifically mr blaza mark freeman and tom thank you guys so much for for reviewing it give me valuable feedback that i'm actioning on so uh i'll probably be launching that course um ready for the holiday season um it is going to be awesome in my eyes uh and not sleazy, brother. People need to know about it. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I figured, you know, like obviously why, well, why, why create a course? Well, create a course, obviously to teach you guys awesome stuff and hopefully spread my philosophy and eat those in the way I work uh, out there. But I've spoken to literally thousands of aspiring data scientists, right? Through data science dream job. Like I've been doing this mentorship professionally for years and i see a lot of issues and a lot of problems with these uh, aspiring data scientists who are looking to break into the field but not only that like my mentees get jobs and they start progressing and they start moving up and leveling up and they face challenges so i've like taken what i've learned from helping them and just kind of bundling it up into a course so hopefully you guys enjoy it any last minute closing questions or comments? Uh, I feel like I, I killed enough time. If, if there was something, then I, it would have came through. Does not look like it. Thank you so much, my friends, for hanging out and making this an awesome Friday evening. Uh, be sure to also join the Slack channel if you haven't already. You can see awesome projects like the one Arpit just completed, code and everything out there just for you to, to look at and, and see how we did stuff so you can inspire your own project. My friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.